instead of trying to save the whole world's carbon issues, we have to look at our own lives. We all make 20,000 decisions throughout the day that can make a positive or a negative influence on our environment. I'm Dr. Lamont Repolette, the president of Kane, New Jersey's Urban Research University. This is Urban Impact, a podcast where we examine the complex issues facing urban communities through meaningful conversations with scholars, community leaders, and others who are driving change. Recorded and produced on our campus in Union, New Jersey, this is Urban Impact. Here are your hosts, Michael Salvatore and Barbara George Johnson. We are taking a shift in our next conversation because we're going to be talking about the environment and its effect on our local communities. I am also looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Danielle Shebitz. Dr. Shebitz is the chair of the Kane University Department of Environmental and Sustainable Sciences in the Dorothy and George Hennings College of Science, Mathematics, and Technology. So welcome to Urban Impact. And I'm really enthusiastic to learn about the uh, your background. You are an ethnobotanist. <laughs> that Make is sure it. I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> and holds a PhD in ecosystem science from the University of Washington, Seattle. So, Dr. Shabitz, again, welcome to Urban Impact, and talk to us a little bit today about the study that you're doing. So, I study plants, I study people, um, and how they use plants, and that's what ethnobotany is. Um, My work historically has been with local and indigenous people and how they use plants for things like basketry ceremony, for medicine, Um, and in urban communities, it's really geared towards making sure that people feel that connection between their environment and themselves because we see that it's so easy to become lost in the city and not feel connected. Um, So that's my job and my role here is to try to foster that connection. Well, let's talk about that a little bit in terms of your micro micro forest um, project. So this is an exciting new project that we're engaged with. And it's a real partnership between us and Groundwork Elizabeth, which is a nonprofit organization that's based here in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um, And they work a lot with um, trying to get people connected with their local environment in the urban areas through not only agriculture, but now they're they're emphasizing these microforests or Miyawaki forests that are based out of a Japanese method of planting very dense native species um, in a tiny area. And usually this area has soil contamination. So they are using these this dense forest or microforest to help remediate soil, to clean the soil, to help absorb stormwater so that there's no flooding in our or less flooding in our areas. Um, as you said, Barbara, so eloquently to sequester or hold on to carbon so that um, it's not we're not contributing to climate change and also to use trees as an amazing vehicle to absorb some other pollutants that otherwise would enter our lungs. So trees are great friends, especially our native trees. Trees, and having them densely planted in urban areas has so many benefits. Another important benefit, which we can't forget, is to, again, remind people of their connection to their environment and to have them be a part of not only seeing the trees, but also being there to help plant the forest. And that's what Groundwork Elizabeth does. They reach out to the local communities, many of whom are, and are a lot of our students get involved, um, and have them be part of that, laying that groundwork of that forest and also monitoring it. So we have students who are here who are measuring how 
exactly how the carbon flux, which is the amount of carbon going into the soil, is ba being balanced out in these areas and how that changes over time. We have students who are monitoring the growth of the plants over time um, and who are also going to be looking at how those plants foster biodiversity outside of just the plants, but also looking at insects and birds and how they're using these tiny forests. So we're just beginning the work. Um, right now, we've been working with a forest that's right a mile away from campus at the Elmora Library in Elizabeth. And that's on a micro farm. Um, so there's not only a micro forest, there's also a micro farm there. Um, and then there's a brand new one next to the housing authority um, in Elizabeth as well. Um, and we're comparing this to another micro forest, which is not in a contaminated site in Summit, New Jersey. Um, and that is by their library as well. So we have a series of them and Groundwork Elizabeth has successfully secured funding to install a few more and we're excited to continue our work with them. I just, uh, I'm preparing myself for ethnobotanist humor. Um, <laughs> so uh, Danielle is so passionate about it. And I noticed your uh, analogies of my roots here at Kane and the branches of this. I said, oh gosh, this is what we're in for, Barbara, today. We're going to hear a lot of botanist jokes and uh, references. Oh, I have so many. Um, I'm sure you do. Um, but I want to go back to groundwork, Elizabeth. Please. So um, I did a little research before you came and I was just I mean, the work that's being done there is amazing, but it's also some of the vocabulary that I'm just not familiar with. Uh, I've heard uh, about heat islands in yes. terms of what that means in urbanized communities. Uh, also, I mean, we all know about food insecurity, but what it really means in this, this environment. Tell me a little bit about our students working with local community groups, working with local government officials, and what that's like for you as their instructor to be able to see this, to uh, see the benefit, and see them actually aspire to particular careers in these areas. It means everything. Um, so I think one of the things that's so important to me is to um, understand that my role as a professor is geared more towards making sure that my students carry on these messages and make a significant difference. As a scientist, I believe that we can't afford for science to not be applied anymore. So we are facing so many challenges around the world, climate change being one of them, but there are so many health-related issues that are directly linked to the effects of poor air, poor water, poor, poor soil in our neighborhoods. Um, we're, lo we're losing biodiversity at such an alarming rate. And my role as a scientist is to try to do whatever I can to mitigate some of the damages that we are causing. So to marry those two and to see that I could have the ability to change my local environment, my global environment, and also to nurture students to kind of carry that torch and do the work themselves is priceless. Um, I also really love the opportunity to work with Groundwork Elizabeth because they have such a terrific relationship with our local government and with our state government, um, with the USDA, the NRCS. Um, and so they really have been a, a very important partner with me throughout the, my entire time here. Um, really priceless. And now I'm grateful to have some of the full-time employees there kind of finishing up their degrees with us as well here. So they're also our students. We're collaborating on grants. We're collaborating on projects. Um, and so it's, even though we've been working together for probably a decade or so now, um, I, there's so much more work that could be done. So one of the challenges I've, uh, I think you face with kind of your mission work is that people don't understand the context because it's so great. It's so large. I read today it was something about like 51 gigatons of greenhouse gases are emitted. And, and what does that even mean? Mm. Uh, so how do you begin to relate some difficult concepts like that that are hard to conceptualize to students and to people like myself who are not engaged in this work every day? 
<laughs> that is a loaded question that I've been wrestling with my entire life. And so on days like today, when it's 50 something degrees in the middle of February, um, you know, everybody turns to me and they're like, what are we going to do about climate change? And I'm like, I've been trying to get you on board for years. Um, yeah, this is a very important issue. Um, it's And as you said, it's very hard to wrap our head around, but we have no choice. We have to wrap our head around it. It's not going away. And we're starting, we're seeing so many of the effects immediately within our community, um, whether it's the flooding, the coastal erosion, the sea level rise that's affecting our local biodiversity, um, our health problems as well. We we here in New Jersey can't escape it. And globally, we can't escape it, right? We're looking at desertification or the spread of deserts in areas where they shouldn't be, or the burning of the rainforest that should not be burning um, because they just don't have as much precipitation and slash and burn agriculture. There's so many issues. Um, and it's overwhelming if you, if you stop to think about it. So the most important thing is that we all think about what we personally could do. Um, and that instead of trying to save the whole world's carbon issues, we have to look at our own lives and we have to start thinking about what it is that we do, whether it's reusing uh, water bottles, whether it's you know making sure that we take mass transit instead of driving everywhere, making a decision about what type of clothing to buy, what type of, um, and do we need to buy as much clothing as we do or as much, or the cars or everything that we purchase. We live in such a consumeristic society that we value our material goods without really taking that moment to think about the repercussions that every single choice we have makes. Another really important way to, to make a difference is by looking at what we eat. Every meal, we make a choice, right? And we could think about where does our food come from? And how much energy does it take to grow or the food or the, the plants or the animals that we rely on? And it's so easy to become disconnected in an urban community from everything that it takes to support us. And so my job is to try to make sure that people feel those connections again and that they understand that we all make 20,000 decisions throughout the day that can make a positive or a negative influence on our environment. Oh, I got her warmed up for you. Right, you do. Yeah. <laughs> a loaded question with a great answer and a great response. But uh, let me take that a little further. We're talking about sustainability in urban communities. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, the urban farming and the greenhouse uh, initiative here. Yeah, this is so exciting to me. So the very first time that I met President Rappelet, he I introduced myself as uh, an environmental science professor. And he pulled me aside and he said, I want to convert the greenhouse into a hydroponic uh, nursery. Let's make it happen. And that was the vision that he had right away. But I have to tell you, it was so refreshing for me because we've been staring at this beautiful greenhouse in the middle of campus that was not functioning at all um, for the whole time that I was here. With that, we reached out to Groundwork Elizabeth, our friends, who are experts in the field of urban ag, um, agriculture. And so we worked with them to design a hydroponic system that would be geared towards our students so that they could all participate and understand the growing process. Um, and it's amazing to see how it's taken off. So um, we grow tomatoes, we grow lettuce and arugula and basil. Um, we're experimenting with medicinal plants as well because I teach medicinal botany here at Kane. So we're experimenting with growing some of those as well for the greenhouse, in the greenhouse. Um, and the students are involved in every step of the way. So we do have a work study student who helps to manage the greenhouse and make sure on a daily basis everything is okay. But we also use it as a place for our students to learn about growing food, harvesting food, um, and all of the science that goes into it. It's not just a matter of like going 
to get it when it's done, but understanding how to measure the nutrients, the, so the water pH, um, and all of the inputs. We call it inputs and outputs, right? So what has to go into the system, and then what do we get in return? So we have a terrific professor, uh, Dr. Dongyan Mu, who studies hydroponic systems, and we've collaborated on a, a grant that through which we really kind of measure inputs and outputs, and that's really her area of focus. Um, and she does research in our lab up on the third floor of the science building that really looks at hydroponic science and how do we contribute to the field of science of growing our own food. Um, again, making sure that our students are very well aware of that you don't have to go to the grocery store. Um, to get your pro your produce. And Groundwork Elizabeth has had a great initiative where they've literally put raised bed gardens in almost every single school in Union County, um, making sure that students from those schools are involved in the garden construction, the garden planting, and the garden harvesting. And so our students, again, have been part of that initiative too, and it's just been really exciting to see. We can't continue to grow as a society on the diets that we have. Um, we there is so we call it carbon miles, right? So there's so much carbon that goes into getting our food grown 3,000 miles away in California and then shipped to us um, and then packaged in plastic and um, and then we have to drive to the store and get it. And that's just not sustainable over the long run. Um, and it's amazing that we could do it right here, even in urban areas of New Jersey. And hydroponics allows us to do it in a way that doesn't use soil. Um, it only relies on water, recirculating water, so that you're not constantly using flowing water, you're recirculating the water. Um, it's very little in terms of energy input and you know, very great output. So, you know, you've said so many things that really emphasize the importance of university, having connections with partners that are mm -hmm. community partners. I mean, Groundworks Elizabeth seems amazing. I know that you have a student here. I think it's Jackie Park Album, right? Yeah. Uh, from Groundworks, that's also a student at Kane that's involved as their, their agricultural director. Yeah. So that shows the importance of university connecting with community. I'd like to ask about how you see this scaling up, right? So we're at, with Elizabeth, we're looking at Groundworks now, working very closely with them. But at the Watson Institute, we work with a number of urban municipalities across the state of New Jersey. So I'd be interested in what is the thought around scaling up these initiatives and opportunities to engage with Kane and having Kane engage our students who come from other mm -hmm. parts of the state with uh, similar type programming. Wow, I am so excited that you're talking about this because we have actually applied for a couple, of, we're applying for a couple of grants now through the USDA to do exactly that. Um, our goal is to start educating teachers so that they they could bring this back to their classroom. So we want to become a resource for teachers around New Jersey and maybe even beyond to learn how to grow food hydroponically and sustainably in smaller micro farm areas. And that way we could kind of make sure that there's this continuous connection. So by training teachers how to train their students in their own school districts, we could have a huge impact. Through science, we share our research with the greater community and so with the scientific community. So our role here as we start moving towards R2 is to make sure that we we are also contributing to those journals that will and to the conferences so we could continue to learn and grow as scientists and also to contribute to the scientific field of sustainable agriculture. As the world's population has already surpassed 8 billion people and we know it's heading towards 10 pretty soon, we're going, we need to keep feeding all of those mouths um, and the role of sustainable agriculture cannot be overemphasized in that and so we want to be a big voice in it. I am an avid surfer. I surf all year round and I am I live blocks from the ocean, but I'm always attuned to what's going on 
on our coastline, particularly the replenishment efforts that occur, the impact of that. Tell us a little bit about the work our, our Kane Coastal team is doing and what the impact may be. So, first of all, I'm very impressed that you're a surfer. Um, and we have another surfer in our department, um, Professor Will Hennigar, and he is, uh, he's really well connected to all of the coastal communities, also lives um, on, at the shore. And he became good friends with um, the mayor of Keyport, um, who said, hey, we have so many issues around our, um, around our shoreline, and no one's really paying attention to us. Lo and behold, we have um, Provost David Burzell, who said, we're really going to be tackling um, coastal resiliency as part of our new initiative in our hiring of our new faculty. So we have been very fortunate uh, this past year to welcome three faculty members who are dedicated towards coastal resiliency, um, two of whom are tenure track, and one of them is the Equity in Action Fellow, um, is an Equity in Action Fellow. So one of them is a coastal geologist. His name is Dr. Jun Cheng, and he looks at how climate change is affecting the shoreline um, and how uh, coastal erosion is um, is being affected by rising seawaters and storm damage, and also looks at exactly, as you said, beach replenishment. Um, and Keyport is in need of that because they have severe erosion, very little replenishment, and um, rising sea level there. And they had a lot of damage because of um, Hurricane Sandy. That has just, I mean, really, it took forever, um, about like, you know, it was 10 years ago, Hurricane Sandy, and there are some areas that are still suffering. Um, we also have a water quality expert. Her name is um, Dr. Shu uh, Ting Liu, and she studies um, how water quality, especially in coastal areas, uh, is affected. And she's actually a, a water microbiologist, an oceanographer, um, and so she's looking at how the water quality issues that Keyport is facing. And then we have the postdoc fellow, who is Galia Shokri, and she is looking at how um, the, the social issues that are associated with uh, climate change in this community of Keyport and how um, and how society it could become more resilient towards understanding um, climate change and the impacts that it's going to have. And so she looks at it from more of a social perspective. So together, those three faculty, and I'm doing whatever I can to support them, are going to hopefully help Keyport become much more resilient and learn how to plan um, and help them plan uh, so, some initiatives, some townwide initiatives that could help mitigate some some future damages, which are inevitable as we continue to see stronger storms. I would love to throw a curveball out right now. What about the people who say, "Oh, climate change isn't real"? What What are the signs <laughs> right around us that you can easily come back and say, "Well, then, why is this happening, or why does this happen?" Because you know there are people who don't necessarily uh, believe in it or share the passion that you have for yeah. this particular topic. Yeah. So the thing about climate change is that mm, it's happening whether or not we believe it, um, and. So there's, I've been getting this for the for about you know my entire career, um, and inevitably what what happens is that we're starting to see the signs so much more now. So everything from the the storm damage is happening so much more frequently because uh, there's warmer water everywhere. Um, we're seeing the. Obviously, this is the warmest year on record. We, this is the first time that we have no measurable snow. I mean, and it's February already. It's unbelievable. Um, so there's so many signs around us. Um, one besides which, is, as, as far as what I'm seeing here, is that we're, see, we're starting to see uh, the encroachment of saltwater into the forest that I've studied. And so a lot of the 
forests like Atlantic white cedar that are um, that need fresh water, they are dying off because of saltwater intrusion in the Pine Barrens. And so you see these massive tracts of ghost forests because that all that fresh water is now being replaced by rising sea levels. So as an ecologist, the signs are inevitable. We're seeing it everywhere. Um, and around us, for everybody walking around enjoying this 50 degree day, we're seeing that, you know, no matter where you look, you're going to see signs of climate change. And I'm not saying that one warm day in the winter is going to be a sign of climate change, but it, but inevitably the, the warmest eight years on record have been in the past 10 years. And that is just unbelievable. Um, and so there's no denying the science, although if people are trying to, I'd love to have conversations with them over, you know, a walk. <laughs> um, but I think it's a walk through the ghost forest, <laughs> through the yeah. ghost forest yeah. um, which is pretty tragic. But yeah, it's it's happening all around us. And the biggest question is, how far do we have to let it go before we start taking serious action? And it's very scary to see that it's gotten this far. Um, and people are still continuing some of their old habits. Dr. Shabbos, thank you so much for joining Urban Impact today. And I hope that this is the beginning of maybe a series for on sure. climate change and environmental science since uh, came is so much at the forefront of that. So thank you again. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Urban Impact, a podcast produced by Kane, New Jersey's Urban Research University. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get podcasts. For more information, visit kane.edu forward slash urban dash impact.